Welcome to the very first episode of the Time to Build podcast. I'm your host, Yaron Samid, and on this show, we'll aim to inspire fellow founders to dream bigger and live better through the stories and insights of some of the world's most bold and successful entrepreneurs. I'm so excited about our first guest, and it could not be more timely. At only the age of 15, she started her university career at one of the world's top schools, where she would develop artificial intelligence software that, among other things, predicted the first cholera outbreak in Cuba. A few years later, she was an internationally renowned computer science PhD, heralded by the likes of MIT Technology Review as one of the world's top innovators. Still in her 20s, she would build and sell her first AI company to eBay, becoming its youngest chief scientist. Today, she's one of our heroes on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle, harnessing the power of her natural and artificial intelligence to make healthcare better, cheaper, and more widely available for all of us. Oh yeah, she's also a badass black belt in karate. Ladies and gentlemen, the founder, chairwoman, and CTO of Diagnostic Robotics, Dr. Kira Radinsky. Kira, welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. So before we get started uh, and talking about the amazing work that you're doing currently for protecting all of us during this you know, global pandemic, I want to I start from the beginning and, and try to learn a bit about what was it about your past that shaped the person you are today. Can you give us a bit or some thoughts on your past? Sure. So... I was one of the people who came in the large immigration wave from USSR when I was just four. Um, my parents had to leave everything they had behind them, come to Israel and start over. I came to Israel with my mom, my aunt and my grandmother and I always grew up in a family of just very successful women. But when they came to Israel, they had to start from the beginning. When I say start from the beginning, it meaning cleaning houses, babysitting, and this is women who have PhDs in math, computer science, who've been working all of their lives. But when you have to survive, you have to survive. But what they, was only important for them is that I always get education. And from the first time I can be, I believe I remember myself, I always dreamed to be a scientist. This was my always dream. And they always read me the books. They always helped me to go to any hook that you were always possible to go to just to get me to learn science. Although it was expensive, my mom knew that putting the money in those things was very important. So when I was 15, I started studying at the Technium. I started studying computer science and math. I finished my first degree. I went to Darmy. I served in uh, 8-1, mostly doing computer science work. Uh, after finishing, I went uh, back to the Technium towards my PhD. Most of my work in my PhD was trying to take everything humanity wrote in the last 150 years, identified patterns in history automatically using artificial intelligence and by that predict future events. And I've had uh, some work with collaboration with Microsoft Research and the Gates Foundation to predict the first cholera in Cuba in 130 years. We then collaborated with the UN to predict the Sudan riots in 2013. So a lot of the things I was trying to do is things that many times people said that, why are you even doing this? You will never finish your PhD. But you know, I always had this dream of predicting things. I always said that the reason I went to this is I was born uh, a few months after Chernobyl exploded. 
And everybody knew that everybody has to leave USSR, but Jews could not leave. Actually, nobody could leave because USSR would never let anybody leave. And in 89, the USSR decided that they're only gonna let, let the Jews leave because they were never citizens from the beginning. And it came after a lot of pressure, both from Israel and the United States. And my mom was trying to actually get the timing right. So come to Israel because after the Gulf War, everybody knew the Gulf War is gonna start. So of course we came one month before and not after. She almost got it right. So when I say, why did I go into the prediction business? I always say that I was trying to fix some small mistake my mom did of one just month. <laughs> That's an incredible, incredible story. And what's interesting is that, you know, obviously you had a, a tremendous inspiration uh, at home uh, from some incredible role models, it sounds. But what then compels you to become an entrepreneur? That's not a typical path necessarily for a researcher, um, an academic, a PhD. What then makes you take the leap into entrepreneurship? So my dream was always to be a scientist. And this is why I was building all of those systems because I thought it's gonna impact humanity the most. I always sign my emails was change the world. And it's not to tell other people, it's just to remind myself every day what I actually want to do today. And what I realized is just as a scientist, you can bring things onto a proof of concept, but you rely on others to actually make it happen. And it's very hard when you have the actual concept, you believe and you have the dream of how it actually has to be, but no means to make it happen. And nobody's going to make it for you. Uh, I was lucky enough that my partner in life, Sergei Davidovich, was always an entrepreneur. And I saw the things he dreamed actually come true. And he was bold enough to make them happen. And he raised the money to make them happen. And he fought for it. And I understood that if I don't fight for it, it will not happen. Amazing. So out of necessity, you wanted to see the world a certain way and you realize that no one's going to make that happen for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. So then you, um, as we said in the intro, you uh, start your first company still in your 20s. You uh, end up selling it to eBay. You are now a heralded um, innovator worldwide. Pretty comfortable job at uh, eBay. But then something compels you to start diagnostic robotics. How did this company start and what does it do today? It always comes back to what I always dream myself and imagine myself doing. So I wanted to do the prediction business to fix one of her small predictions and I always was excited about healthcare. But to actually understand healthcare, you have to work in that. So I work a lot uh, as a visiting professor at the Technion around healthcare, working with the different HMOs, specifically working at the board of the research department with Maccabi, just understanding the data, understanding the hospitals, understanding their pain. And it took me actual years to understand this. And the moment that I understood this and I met my two co-founders, Professor Moshe Shoham and Jonathan Amir, I realized that this is a unique opportunity to make my dream come true. And what we're doing in diagnostic robotics, we started from a completely different problem. Uh, we started with everything you see today inside the emergency departments, the overloading, the fact that people are waiting hours. So in Israel, people are waiting 3.6 hours. In the United States, three. Want to guess how, many, how much time people are waiting in China? I don't. <laughs> Eight hours. Wow. And the reason, and the reason is till 2030, 3.8 billion people will not have access to primary care. You know what that means? That we're going to be waiting at least the eight hours in the emergency departments, exactly like in China. There's no prediction model needed. We know how it's going to look like in the future. So what we started is, can we obtain 
lots of visits inside emergency departments and build a machine learning model that mimics what doctors are doing in the triage phase so we can actually save time and scale what doctors are doing inside emergency departments. So we've obtained access to hundreds of millions of medical visits, both from Israel, United States, and Singapore. Started building these machine learning models. And then we realized something very important. If you only work inside the emergency department, it's way too late. It's already people who deteriorated. We have to start at least one step before in primary care. So we started building models that try to actually scale the primary care physician. Specifically, we focus on a sub-problem called clinical triage. In other words, before doing something with the doctor, you're going through an automated system that's asking you a set of clinical questions that helps navigate you to the correct location in order to reduce the loads. And then came COVID. When COVID came, we were ready. Uh, we've been working with 75% of the HMOs here in Israel, with millions of people in the United States through our partnerships with different healthcare insurance companies. And we were asked by the Minister of Health here in Israel to extend our clinical triage system, but this time to triage and monitor 8 million people daily, all of the population of Israel. What they asked to receive is an epidemiological map. In other words, showing that where COVID is right now, but most importantly, applying our machine learning algorithms to predict how it's gonna look like in a few more days so they can predict and identify which cities to quarantine and during the exit strategy, how to get out of it to actually begin economy again. How are we doing this? Uh, on a daily basis, people here in Israel were receiving a text message from their medical provider asked to go through a clinical triage about the symptoms. Very early on, we learned the probability from the different answers of the questions, the probability that somebody has COVID. This actually made us uh, a possibility of understanding where the hotspots of COVID and predict, for example, Migdala Emek, Tiveri, Ashkelon. On April 4th, they allowed us only once to publish our predictions. We predicted those three cities they went and did COVID tests. And indeed, a few days later, they decided that the number of patients with COVID in those cities is so high that they were doing a breathing closure for those cities. What it also enabled us is very early on to study the disease. The first triage was around fever and having problems breathing. Without those, you could not receive even a COVID test. We've seen from the first day of running the system, Again, when you have millions of people, you just have enough data to understand those. That loss of taste and smell is very specific for this disease. There was just a couple of academic papers, about two, three people somewhere in Italy. But this was the first time that we had hundreds of thousands of data points to actually validate this. This helped change the triage for having COVID tests also include loss of sense of smell and taste. What the machine learning algorithm is doing behind the scenes is looking at combinations of symptoms and what is the probability of somebody having those combinations to have COVID? So for example, one of the combinations is a dry cough and extreme fatigue. This one is not even written in lots of the academic publications even today, but used by the system to predict the probability for each person if they have COVID. We started the system as completely anonymous, just as a tool to explain decision makers how to make this happen and where COVID is right now. We deployed our system through our partnerships with Deloitte in India, and also directly we deployed this in Rhode Island in the United States. Now, during the exit strategy, the strategy itself is changing a little bit to making this also an existing triage system. In other words, if somebody has COVID, 
with a high probability based on our system, we want their medical provider to know about this. As a company, we have no idea who this person is, but their medical provider will receive a red flag to actually treat them. Incredible. Is this leveraging the work that you had originally done in your PhD when you, know, you, you predicted the first outbreak of cholera in Cuba? Is that right? Is this, yes. is this fundamentally the same technology you as a teenager uh, were starting to work on? Well, I think it's a development, right? Machine learning has uh, actually developed a lot since then. The beginning of my work was around building AI systems, natural language processing, that can read in human history, identifying patterns of the future events. Mm -hmm. Today, it evolved to a set of machine learning algorithms running on medical data, but also on medical publication. So behind the scene, we create causality graphs of medicine. Okay. So we can build much better clinical triage systems. Amazing. Um, it, it, listen, it could not be more timely. And I, you know, I have to say for, for our listeners, which are founders that we are trying to inspire to dream bigger, this is such a big dream, such a huge impact and a greater good on the world. Um, but what we often overlook is that to get here and to have this kind of impact along the way, you must have had some setbacks. And failure is a road sign on the way to success. We all know that. What are some examples of the challenges you faced, either at uh, Diagnostic Robotics or before, that you had to overcome, and how did you overcome those challenges? Oh, so I always was doing competitive sports in karate. You're never born with an ability to win a karate competition. Mm -hmm. It's all about the falling and failing and just being resilient to that. So I completely agree with what you mentioned. And I think the daily failures are almost daily. Yeah. Um, machine learning algorithms are not working from the beginning. We just didn't have enough data. The data was very noisy. We had to completely rewrite it. We had to do a lot of things manually, a lot of things on a supervised machine learning algorithm. It was a daily fight when nobody actually believed this was possible. And when you actually make this happen, people say, well, this wasn't possible before. Even think about this pandemic, would you ever imagine in January, if I told you there's going to be a pandemic. But let me be more concrete. Uh, even in South Predict, we were building a business around predicting economic movements. In other words, actually predicting an economic interaction between two companies. And uh, the company was doing really well. We're predicting uh, for B2B, what is the probability of a lead to be qualified? So we even understood the business opportunity. Uh, but then we understood that, again, we, we have 100 customers, but how do we scale to millions? And we understood from the way we built the company from the beginning, it's just not scalable to get to this millions. If we want to make an impact on the world, this is not the way of doing this. We're lucky enough to actually meet with eBay that in a day just scaled the systems to millions of people. So I wouldn't say it's a failure, it's just understanding well along the way that something, the way you structured the company, the technology, et cetera, just didn't fit to going to millions of people. The infrastructure of our sales was just wrong there. So a lot of the things that we did was actually rebuild this and build it inside the engine of eBay and eventually impact of almost billion dollars per year. Wow, incredible. What would you say is the, your personal superpower that contributed most to your success? I speak fast. <laughs> what else? Is um, that your brain moving fast? Is that what we can interpret from that? You obviously are, are uniquely, uniquely talented uh, with your cognitive abilities here. 
you have natural intelligence, not just artificial intelligence. But is there one thing that you would point out to be a unique contributor to your success? So again, I'm just going to quote somebody else around this. I hope this is indeed Einstein said this and not somebody else like the internet always says, but it's 10% about your intelligence ability, 90% about just hard work and perseverance. Mm -hmm. And I think it was mostly the 90% for me, right? I knew to imagine what I want to achieve. So I have this mental image of how one to see the product, the ability. I actually see people using this. I see the happiness. So the daily failures have no impact of this image and a dream that I have. So maybe the ability to imagine this and know how to run towards this and not be worried about everything that's failing along the way. And I think from childhood, I've just seen so many times that it didn't work from the beginning several times, but eventually it did. So I was lucky enough to have those experiences that I actually scaled them today, first in academia and then today in business. Remarkable. Um, if you were not working on diagnostic robotics, what would be the most interesting problem to solve? Wow, I cannot imagine working on something else than actually healthcare. Right? Uh, I think there is many fields today that have to have a push. Uh, one of the things we're doing in academic settings is around uh, drug repurposing. What's so that? Today, uh, a drug repurposing. Oh, drug. Uh-huh. So today, to actually build a drug, you have it takes ten to twelve years mm -hmm. uh, and billions of dollars. And one of the main ideas was actually how can we take drugs that already exist in the market and see if they work for something completely else. And we've seen many cases that it actually happened. So one of the first things we started doing in academia with my uh, PhD student, Galia Nordon, seeing based on all of the information that Israel has collected about millions of people for the last 25 years, of course, anonymized. Did anybody just take a drug and became healthy in some way? And we'll find dozens of those drugs, dozens. I'll give an example. Uh, we've identified that the drug called PPI is actually reducing hypertension. Interesting. Okay. Relevant for me, by the way. So I would love to be in a uh, beta tester of a clinical trial, please. Well, definitely. <laughs> so they actually already did some clinical trials and verified this. Did they? Okay. What, what was very interesting is that uh, people who take this, it's mostly for upset stomach. Mm. And it turns out that people, when they don't sleep well, they have a higher blood pressure. So actually taking those probably, and again, this is an hypothesis, actually help them sleep better. And one of the most important things, when we were actually looking at the data, we started identifying drugs that not only help diseases, but also create diseases. So one of the things we identified an entire family of drugs called beta blockers used again for hypertension, that had a causality connection to Parkinson's. In other words, it increased by 40% the probability of having Parkinson's. And the reason we didn't know about this is because it develops in a period of 15 years. So you actually have to have longitudinal data to actually get those. And I think Israel was very smart in the fact that it started keeping all of this data for the last 25 years that only now enables us to make those predictions. So today there is uh, the beginning of uh, companies like that. So for example, uh, Blomsbury that came out of this uh, technology is making something which is incredibly interesting in this space. And this is how can we uh, 
actually scale the pharmaceutical business. So healthcare, you're really going to dedicate the rest of your life to this area. And we could not be more grateful, by the way, because I don't think you could make a bigger impact on the world um, with, your, with your experience um, and your skills. What do, would you say, for the founders listening to the show, is the most important lesson to take away from your founder journey so far? Hmm. So there's so many things that I can actually give. So first of all, select your founder well. You're going to be with them for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, select your team well. You, you're going to need support. There's going to be a lot of downs. Not everything is as shiny as it looks. Eventually, we only hear about the startups who succeeded. We don't hear about the startups who failed. Uh, and there is failure on a daily basis. You have to be resilient. And it's okay. Every founder fails. Even if you don't know about this, nobody talks about this in the media. Okay. They fail daily. Trust me. They fail from a technology. They fail in sales. It's the ability of actually twisting the curse very fast and actually getting to the same dream you started with. Try to be connected to the dream. You're going to spend many years about this. Think from the beginning, is it a worthwhile dream to actually pursue? Many people start in their first journey through dreams that they believe are going to be short term. I'm going to build a company and in two years I'm going to sell it. I'm going to be a millionaire. It's very hard to work in this mindset. If you don't do something that's big, you're going to find yourself after two, three years doing something you don't like and probably not sold. Eventually, good mergers, uh, good acquisitions, good IPOs happen because somebody had a very big dream. They understood how it's going to happen. It made sense from a business and a technology perspective as well. It didn't look uh, because of a founder wanting to make a few bucks after two years. So make sure you come into all of these because of the right reasons. Beautiful. Uh, that's probably the perfect uh, manifesto for this podcast. You know, dream big, stick to it. You've got one life to live. And if you have the talent and the motivation to make a dent in the world, stick to it. And along the way, be agile and iterate and change and, uh, you know, anticipate failure. But um, we are the makers of tomorrow. And you've got to remember that, that, that big dream on a daily basis while, while focusing on the, on the little to-dos. Um, you you're remarkable in that. And I want to end this show with um, uh, our rapid fire questions, which are 10 seconds max, okay? I'm going to ask you one question, a few questions. Each yeah. one you have 10 seconds to answer. And uh, then we'll wrap up the show. This is to get to know Dr. Kira Rodinsky a little bit better. You ready? Let's go. What's the most interesting fact about you that most people don't know? I don't like chocolate. Who's better than you at what you do and why? Uh, my husband, Sakita Vidovic. He does everything amazing. He's an artist. He's a scientist. He, he can fix stuff around the house. And he's just an amazing partner. Incredible. I want to invest in your kids. Uh, question number three, what book greatly influenced you? Um, 100 Years of Solitude. When you feel overwhelmed, Kira, what do you do when you just need a break? What do you do? I go jogging. What's your definition of success in life? <sighs> Getting to the dreams that you thought that you're going to get to. If you could make a 10-second phone call to yourself at any point in your life, 
when would you call and what would you say? Hmm. So I think before starting my first company, I wanted to call myself and say, hey, is this is the type of field that you would love? Is actually predicting economy is what you're really excited about. Maybe you should start doing healthcare earlier. What's the title of the current chapter of your life? Wow. Peace. Beautiful. Lastly, Kira, how do you want to be remembered? The one who pushed humanity's knowledge by just a little bit forward. Wow. Amazing. Dr. Kira Rodinsky, thank you very, very much for taking time out of your incredibly important and busy schedule, saving lives on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle. You are a true inspiration, um, not only to uh, founders around the world, but to hopefully little girls who just like you had incredible role models at home. They have you as that role model. I don't know if you're aware or can appreciate the cascade effect that that has on, uh, on girls around the world who listen to stories such as yours. So I'm very, very grateful you came on our show. Thank you, Kira. Uh, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, it's time to build. I'm not going to be